welcome everyone as Fantastic Geek dons the hat for a brand new movie universe. My name is Matt and joining me as always is Pete. Hello, Pete. Hello, Matt. Hello, everybody. Here today to discuss Raiders of the Lost Ark. Not that other title it's since been given. Uh, since we found ourselves with a couple weeks to fill before Star Trek Picard Season 3. Indeed. So we'll be talking Raiders this week, and then it's sequel, prequel. <gasps> George Lucas doing a prequel uh, with Temple of Doom. We'll be dis- discussing that next weekend, uh, the weekend after that. Proper Picard Season 3 preview ahead of uh, weekly Star Trek Picard coverage for its 10-episode run. And speaking of Star Trek Picard, we've got a final Season 3 trailer inbound a trailer to the trailer uh already out there the first four episodes of season three have also been screened and i'm looking forward to the rest of you seeing them pete the number of star trek fans who are going to be finding out tomorrow for the first time that paramount plus also has not just live television coverage but also has uh, the American gridiron, gridiron style football uh, that streams live on it as well. Number of Star Trek fans discovering that it's going to be like through the roof. <laughs> um, but indeed, it's going to be during uh, what I understand, Pete, is the the midpoint rest period uh, is when this Picard uh, trailer is slated to uh, to premiere. I can't wait for those cool football guys to be like, you know, to to do some sort of great tee off, tee into it. It'll play, and then you know your your tony romo or whoever will be like wow that looks totally vulcan dude (laughs) you know and then other guy will be like yes live live life and and do well now back to game um it it is interesting cbs leveraging this spot and and clearly trying to get the most out of uh star trek and Picard and admirable, but Star Trek is also not Star Wars in terms of big game trailers. So, yeah, I mean, worth a try. We'll see what happens. Um, you know, from uh, Star Trek back to Star Wars here and connecting to Indiana Jones, um, The Bad Batch has been uh, running season two each week on uh, Disney Plus and uh, did an Indiana Jones homage this week in maybe their worst episode yet. Uh, Pete, sometimes chocolate and peanut butter go together well, but you shouldn't necessarily put chocolate sauce on strawberry jam because it might not go well together, even though they work well with other things so oh well there uh but pete i do know that in the far off future of june of this year um what i'm gonna stand firm and say is the fourth indiana jones movie is coming out <laughs> would you like to say more on the topic well to our schedule we're gonna give you these two up front we're gonna podcast obviously raiders today we will do temple of doom next week uh at some point prior to and you know our our schedule's still a little 
um, you know, uh, hazy, you know, what with Star Trek Picard uh, beginning February 16th, Mandalorian season three beginning March 1st. We still don't know about Marvel's uh, secret invasion, um, assuming, of course, there will be another Star Trek, uh, most likely first um, Strange New World season two at some point probably later spring uh, when we will bring you the other two uh, that are already out, Matt. I'm talking, of course, about um, The Last Crusade and then Kingdom of the Crystal Skull prior to, Matt, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny uh, coming out June 30th. Uh, And, uh, you know, that, of course, uh, if... It still comes out uh, what with, you know, YouTubers claiming that um, after they have unearthed evidence that Indiana Jones, um, the other four movies will be erased from existence in the narrative of this film, that that at the 11th hour has been stopped and they are reshooting uh, so that uh, their, um, you know, Indiana Jones villains, uh, Kathleen Kennedy and uh, Fleabag don't destroy uh, Harrison Ford and this beloved uh, adventurer series. Pete, it's oddly reassuring to know that you know, Star Trek has its faux fans who claim that things are being erased and taken from them and that they're, meanwhile, Star Wars has people saying that, what is it? Hasn't there also been recently, if only they do the Heir to the Empire trilogy, then that will erase the sequel trilogy. And now I guess this this next Indiana Jones movie is going to be erasing or not erasing for people who are so afeard of things being erased they seem to erase a lot of things um pete they are condemned to use the tools of their own fear to try and get rid of the things that they fear well it's a good thing matt that uh tom Selleck uh wasn't erased from the cast of this film this is a movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark, whose initial genesis is perhaps before and certainly concurrent to the early 70s development of Star Wars. So fitting that Star Wars, obviously, this unseen Star Wars 1977, Star Wars New Hope, this unseen, uh, unplanned for behemoth that suddenly explodes onto the, the consciousness of the world in 1977 makes sense to what used to be fast track three years to a sequel. Um, but you know, makes sense to fast track star Wars two, if you will. Um, but I give Lucas a ton of credit. Um, had this idea kicking around. Indeed, the famous story, he goes to Hawaii when, uh, star Wars opens in order to escape the, the, the forthcoming colossal failure only to find out it's not, but he's hanging out, in Hawaii with uh, Steven Spielberg. Steven Spielberg wants to do a James Bond movie at some point, and uh, Spielberg starts to sell him in, on the idea of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Again, obviously, um, Empire Strikes Back takes 
precedence in terms of getting that developed and you know pre-production and all of that but you know to think that raiders comes out one year after empire strikes back and on a certain level raiders has learned from the lessons of star wars um it's budgeted at 20 million dollars not the fake eight million dollars the empire was budgeted for then it balloons to 30 like this was 20 and we're going to do 20 spielberg is that voice kind of like irvin kirshner uh to, to say no to ideas pete one idea in particular that we'll talk about a little bit that spielberg was very wise to pump the brakes on um but this kind of conceived to be from a production point of view definitely big definitely spectacle definitely razzle dazzle um but to be you know two-thirds of the effort two-thirds of the difficulty two-thirds of the budget of star wars um, and then as you say, Pete, they're circling a bunch of unknown actors, including uh, a guy who had a contract with CBS, but they, they, they weren't really sure they were going to go for this, you know, detective show, Tom Selleck, your new old first ever to be, uh, Indiana Jones. Yeah. And obviously the bankability of a Harrison Ford off star Wars and empire strikes back and, with what goes on with Empire Strikes Back, uh, this new landing spot for him as a bona fide box office draw to launch this character, this franchise. And, you know, the history of Hollywood is replete with, you know, choices. Matt, you were talking about it on Twitter the other day. You know, we almost had another Wolverine un until will eventually have another Wolverine. But the way that things shake out and, you know, how you get what you get and the success that it brings with it, you know, I will forever remember going to see this film with my grandparents in 1981. Um, I've talked about it before on the podcast, you know, my uh, early childhood every Saturday without fail. Uh, they took us to the movies. Uh, my grandfather would sleep in the car um, waiting to pick us up. My grandmother would take us in and then they take us to McDonald's for lunch after it and vividly remember seeing this and then having chicken McNuggets for the first time. Matt, what a country. <laughs> um, it's funny that you should mention that. Obviously, on our Star Wars podcasts, I've, you know, I've mentioned having these vivid memories of getting a VCR in 1987 and the first time I saw, you know, the first star Wars movie going out, you know, afterwards going out onto my back deck with my uh, Fisher price uh, binoculars and, and, you know, being like Luke there looking out into the desert. And I remember, you know, turning off the terror that was uh, the torture scene in empire and, and, you know, and watching return of the Jedi and feeling, you know, it wasn't as good as the first, uh, the first two, but kind of like, Oh, the complete thing. Like, I remember all of that. I don't, I feel like Indiana Jones has always been there, which again is weird um, because I think I watched it, I would have watched it at home with the same, Hey, we have a VCR. Let's go, you know, let's go rent movies now and so forth. Um, other than the, the fear, I do v vaguely remember the fear of, you know, the, the spiders in the beginning, uh, which even as I was watching it this week, I was like, I'm going to the kitchen now, family. Let me know <laughs> when it's over. I know it's, a little bit and kind of quick you know like okay that still ha that, that still speaks to me uh but beyond that like i feel like this movie 
not as much Temple of Doom. Um, and and we'll discuss um, we'll discuss Last Crusade in due course. But this movie kind of predates its origin in my memory, um, which which was also weird because I haven't seen this movie beginning to end in probably twenty plus years. So there was definitely things where like. Oh, hey, this is the part where he gets on the horse and wheels it around and everybody starts cheering. Like, that's when it happens in the movie. I forgot. Hey, the whole basket chase. I don't know how it turns out exactly. I don't think she's dead in the truck, but I don't quite remember. So it was this weird, again, nostalgia plus I'd forgotten it. So parts of it were new um, and just a really kind of wonderful experience. This is another pillar in my childhood with Star Wars and this, and obviously a lot of the production people and the star carrying over. Um, and then, you know, the amount of adventures that sprang from this and, you know, going from the Paramount logo there, the transition to this prologue in uh, you know, South America, the jungles of Peru in 1936, but that mountain on the island of Kauai that years and years later I would uh, be able to visit. Oh, wow. That's that's impressive. Um, and I think that was something that Spielberg thought up on the fly. Um, I should mention, Pete, this is a Spielberg who is coming off of the movie 1941, which was a bomb and kind of risked taking the air out of the tires of like Wunderkind, the Jaws guy. Like here we are, it's now, you know, this is now several years after Jaws and you had a, your most recent thing was a bomb. So maybe Jaws was just a, no pun intended, fluke. So Lucas, Lucas is set on making, on being disciplined in this movie he has the quote that many times where he might want to do 30 or 40 takes, he was aware I get to do three or four takes and it's time to move on. Um, and, and I mean, look, this opening bit here, so iconic. I, Pete, I hadn't forgotten a single frame of it. Just, you know, nothing in it was a surprise because so much of it is burned into cinema history from the way it's unfolding, the, the, the mystery man back to the camera, mm -hmm. um, us seeing that uh, that Indiana Jones is about to be sold out here, then the turn, the whip, the whole thing. Um, and that's even before you're in the iconic stuff with the temple. Stepping into the light, the outfit, you know, so iconic, the hat, the leather jacket, the whip, all of that. You know, you instantly recognize who this is it's going to be interesting as this fifth and final question mark film comes out in june you know what the reaction will be uh matt of course firmly tongue-in-cheek joking about uh his beloved kingdom of the crystal skull from 2008 uh that he fails to recognize that but, you know, from the reveal of Harrison Ford's Indiana Jones to this temple, uh, Matt, somebody I wouldn't realize until years and years and years later, Alfred Merlina here as uh, Satipo, um, you know, the, the, the loyal, <laughs> quote unquote, uh, you know, sidekick 
along here. And then you mentioned the the tarantulas as they're going in and, you know, all right, hey, Indy's got a couple on him. Went to just brush him off. And then wait, no, you turn around and just covered. And something that as I was watching this and reflecting on the other films, you know, what do Indiana Jones films traffic in? You know, you mentioned the spectacle before and these set pieces for which it is known and and kind of like the standard. And then, you know, after that, you'd really kind of say the the gross out and like the, you know, PG 13 ish gore. And next week uh, for Temple of Doom, I mean, he, he, here's the one sentence summary. Uh, Temple of Doom is at ground zero. One of the two films at ground zero for uh, what was then called the MPAA, recognizing that G uh pg and r were not enough that you needed something <laughs> you needed something i don't know pete maybe for a movie where there's a whole bunch of bugs and then there's a guy getting his heart pulled out and then there's fire everywhere and there's slave kids like there needs to be something that's beyond you know so somewhere between you know bambi and i don't know a movie where somebody says you know some four-letter words and then true r-rated you know naked violence or whatever temple of doom is a major reason why it was a PG-13 rating. Uh, also, divorce. But we'll talk about that next week. So, uh, the fertility idol here, the clear quest, and, you know, the the booby traps, and the other stuff we've got to avoid in this uh, temple sequence, really setting up, you know, this is what this character does. Is, is he a grave robber? Uh, okay, the reveal in a little bit. Archaeology, everything like that. You know, slowly unfurling, interestingly so. And these sets, you know, the the ravines and needing to whip your way across. And then, oh, it's a clear path to it. That's what scares me. The The pressure... Uh, you know, uh, points on the steps and the, the darts and everything there. And then why was he filling up sand in a bag? Oh, it's a counterweight. That's what he's got to do uh, to grab this idol and, uh, of course, bring it back to put it in a museum. <laughs> um, and even, you know, even leading to perhaps maybe not perhaps undoubtedly the most iconic thing from any Indiana Jones film, uh, the big giant stone ball to watch it. You know, again, I think everybody knows this opening scene chapter and verse, but to see it and be like, wow, it really does look good. It looks good on the big TV and so forth. Um, and at a certain level here we are in 2023, you kind of don't necessarily question why it looks so good. And to do a little digging and be like, Okay, giant, you know, it's obviously not a real stone ball, 200-pound ball made of, you know, wooden plaster and so forth. Got it. There's a hidden steel tube guide track. Okay, makes sense. It's a real Harrison Ford running away from it. And that's when you go, <laughs> excuse me, what? That's a real Harrison Ford running away from a 200-pound ball that, best-case scenario, could break a bone or or a, a face something. Uh, and, you know, worst-case scenario could could do a whole lot worse. Um Again, now you go back and rewatch that scene and go, oh my goodness, there's not cheating here. There's not, 
This is too early for digital face swap out, et cetera, et cetera. He's running yeah. away. When he He's... goes to his knee at yeah. one point and you're like, my God, this, this, this could not end well. <laughs> um, and surely Matt, uh, you're aware of, if not having seen at the then Hollywood studios, the Indiana Jones stunt spectacular, right? Uh, Pete, not only have I been there many times since 1994, uh, but the last time I saw the stunt spectacular, I was one of the people picked from the audience. We're in it, no way. Yeah, I'll, I'll have to send you the video at some point. Here's a tip for anybody. What you do is, first of all, you sit. You sit all the way on the left side, not the right side, because they pick from audience right to audience left. Well, it's, it's close. And then you go, ooh, ooh. you kind of get heard um and then they pick you it's closed it's over it is i'm pretty sure it was pulled out oh no well pete maybe maybe post post bob jpeg they'll bring it back but that was definitely that was definitely a a big memory there um and uh pete i'll always remember being guy in being local cairo towns guy number six in in the crowd (laughs) Pete, quick check of the old computer shows that it was closed, obviously, during COVID for, for a time post-COVID. But uh, as of our recording right now, there are three or four shows today alone. So uh, glad to see the stunt show carries on. There you go. Um, but yeah, seen that many times and the way that it traffics, particularly with this scene. Um, and then yeah, having escaped with the treasure there, right? The, the first MacGuffin of the film of a couple, uh, we meet for the first time, Indiana Jones foil of Rene Belloc before uh, running away from the natives. He's kind of uh, co-opted what with uh, his quest to steal the thing that Indiana Jones has stolen and then we layer further early characterization upon Indiana Jones, his fear of snakes, uh, his pilot friend we never ever see again, and his pet snake, Reggie. Pete, are you aware, and this is a place I've not been to, but in, in what I would personally argue from afar is one of the lamest tie-ins ever. Are you aware that there is a Disney Springs restaurant named for the pilot i think it's jock Lindsay. it's jock something but the that the pilot it's imagined that in disney springs the pilot retired and opened this aviation themed restaurant that you can go to now and and reflect on his pilot adventures with indiana jones which last about 90 seconds on screen from a movie from 1981 that seems mildly exhausting um i will mention pete that not only is there the snake bit which is if anything it's more a setup for the the massive uh snake scene later on but i remember as maybe a 13 year old getting a book called the films of steven spielberg that would have been after after that because jurassic park was in there and so forth anyhow mid 90s getting getting a book and it noted it kind of blew my mind i was like whoa symbols in film pete it noted that his fear of the snake okay 
that's uh, that's a little bit of uh, symbol 101. He must be the good guy for he fears the snake, you know, <laughs> Garden of Eden, good, evil, and so forth. So, you know, yes, it's handsome Harrison Ford. And is he stealing things or is it this or is that? He's a good guy for he is a feared of uh, that which once uh, tempted us with the apple. This prologue really kind of being a, a short film in and of itself and that it concludes with the grand John Williams, Indiana Jones theme, uh, the Raiders march, if we will, from the, uh, the soundtrack here uh, before Matt, where everybody goes for their greatest adventure, higher education. Um, yeah. Knowing that, Contemporary audiences obviously would be like, look, it's Han Solo. And now it's Han Solo in a leather jacket doing Han Solo-y things, albeit without a gun, in the prologue portion. To just kind of take that deep breath and say, here's Harrison Ford in glasses giving a thoughtful uh, lecture here. He's got the Pete Oldie time PowerPoint. That's right, the chalk and the board. Um, and explaining all the particulars of the uh, the the sections of you know such and such tomb and all of that um it's it's just a great way i think a to you know this is a movie that had some of its action scenes conceived by spielberg and lucas uh before lawrence kasdan came along and they were like lawrence we need a story um so to have a scene like this where you can kind of see the real world and see what he does when he takes off the leather jacket and the fedora um be popular amongst the students one has the love you eyes uh that lady and then the, the young man on the way out leave an apple for teacher uh th the kids love it pete the kids love it yes the professor here uh as you mentioned all the all the girls you know the female students here in 1936 on their on their hands just uh dreamily watching uh dr jones you call him Dr. Jones, Matt. And of course, uh, Marcus Brody played for us here by uh, Denham Elliott, uh, who will reappear in the third film. Um, one of the very public early victims of AIDS. The presence here of Brody in the classroom, I think that's, that's all well and good as it is. And there's a little back and forth. Hey, you know, I almost... Let me recap the prologue. Okay, got it. Yes, we'll buy some of the trinkets. No questions asked. But, 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 says Brody, uh, there, are some, there are some government men who want to talk to you. That seems just fine. I will point out, Pete, with a, a slight loving uh, wag of the finger here, then the next scene, which is entirely exposition of like, well, let me tell you about this. And then there's Hitler. And then there's the dig. Why would he dig for? Can you give us a thing? Yes. And let me draw the, the staff. And let me draw the thing on top of it. And let me tell you how later on there's going to be beams of light coming down. Oh, there will. Like, it's it's a, it's a tad too talky for my tastes. And Pete, I know that some of the best movies have such a scene. Okay. Citizen Kane has it. Titanic has it. Um, maybe both of those are aided by audiovisual presentations. This is more like, wait, what if I turn the, the, the blackboard around and I draw the staff and the light and so forth. But again, super talky scene. Got to have your vegetables. Got to tell us what's going to unfold for the next hour and a half. But uh, it, it definitely was like, oh, look, more peas. Thank you. 
and that the uh, heavy of the two government officials, I, I mean that, of course, metaphorically, not literally, is played by the actor who played uh, Jack Porkins in the original Star Wars, something that blew my mind uh, later on to discover, talking about how Hitler's obsessed with the occult. Okay, we're, we're linking this up to World War II, uh, obviously to the, uh, the the draw up to that and this lost city of Tannis, this mentor character of Abner Ravenwood and this second MacGuffin that you alluded to, this uh, headpiece of the staff of Ra uh, that is going to allow them to find this uh, lost Ark where the remains of the Ten Commandments may have magical power that Hitler could destroy the world with. And what an interesting real-world plot point for the movie to turn on. Uh, I speak, of course, of Hitler's interest in the occult and and the supernatural powers and so forth, which I think uh, seems in contrast to the you know, kind of very terrestrial, you know, <laughs> victimize certain people. And then that increases your, your, you know, your, your place with your core audience. And then here's a map, here's how you attack tanks, planes, you know, and so forth. Um, but obviously that's through and through with what we've seen already. If you're watching this for the first time in terms of that, you know, the, the, the whole temple in Peru is not necessarily magical, but it's kind of, you know, do I think the stone thing still goes down after these hundreds of years? You kind of, well, well, kind of, sort of, because of the craftsmen of the time and so forth. Um, so again, kind of this supernatural, magical, religious gray area that the film, that all, all three, four films um, <laughs> deal with. Uh, the fact that it has this, this really, really strange real world underpinning of, Hitler's interest in the occult it's it's a good starting point for this I know later on Spielberg would say I can't have Nazis as villains in a you know I I can't be so flippant anymore except for when I come back for Crystal Skull and and things of that sort so I know part of this film is reassessing it throughout the ages but um I will say what a great kind of first act here to be laying out all of this but before long, we have a clean-shaven Indiana Jones ready to go on this grander adventure. Um, but Matt, I ask you, though we see uh, the plane clearly leave from the West Coast, uh, assuming San Francisco, right? We see the, the, uh, the bridge there as it's going out. Uh, where and what is Indiana Jones' uh, day job, archaeology professor, uh, college university? Well, it's it's so funny that you should mention that because I had a middle school, high school, kind of early college years friend who you know have you know kind of lost lost track with different paths in life and so forth. But part of his attract, I recall distinctly. Part of his attraction to the University of Chicago was, I 
my, I have a distinct memory of sitting his, in his living room, him saying, I want to go to the University of Chicago because that's where Indiana Jones uh, went, worked. I mean, obviously this was, he, he knew fact from fiction, don't get me wrong, but the University he of Chicago. Study, study under Dr. Henry Jones Jr. <laughs> um, the there was this program. It, it was in my head from. It was in my head that he worked at the University of Chicago, taught at the University of Chicago. And then when that little blip left, um, let's say, Northern California, I was like, wait, but but what? Um, so, so, Pete, I'll turn it back to you. I don't know. Myth and memory have, have, have mixed in a way that I guess is not accurate to the map. Can you tell me? So uh, Indiana Jones teaches at Marshall College, a fictional American University in Bedford, Connecticut, which uh, is used. Uh, the location is Barnett College in Fairfield, New York. Okay, so I guess he met up with. So I guess maybe the map wasn't completely accurate or whatever. I know this. Um, again, Spielberg was under studio pressure and self pressure to not get behind in schedule nor budget. Uh, and Lawrence Kasdan's script had all these great montages to show travel from this place, that, the other. And uh, it was Spielberg who said, what if instead we did a map with lines? Because that costs next to nothing. <laughs> next. Uh, you know, cut to... Uh, cut to, you know, Aaron Nepal set needing to shoot nothing between San Francisco and Nepal except for plane and clouds. And maybe even in the Paramount archives, they have those already. Quick, draw some lines, you know, the end. So to arrive in Nepal here and start to meet some different characters for the first time, you think of how present Indiana Jones is in his films. Um, but the character of Marion here, Karen Allen, okay, this uh, drinking contest in this uh, bar in Nepal, and the characterization immediately from her, you know, little gal, but can drink this uh, other person under the table, um, and then to meet up with Indy as she's closing down for the night and to have all this backstory. Oh, wait, this is Abner Ravenwood. This is the mentor character's daughter. They fell in love. It wrecked the relationship. Mentor has died. And to really backload this story. What great wisdom, kind of even separate from what's going on at this point contemporarily with princess leia as a character in the star wars trilogy uh who i think we can all agree is a you know is a tough a tough gal although uh occasionally beginning return of the jedi you know maybe maybe presented through uh through different different views and so forth so wonderful in this movie like you get marion introduced here as perhaps not in our story the equal of indiana jones but in her own story, she is the equal. In in, in the implied backstory, in, in in whatever might come after this, and so forth. You know, here she is, the bar owner, the 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 drinkingest drinker, and so forth, um, and just super tough and capable, and so forth. You know, look, obviously, having such a character is not 
was not a complete unknown in 1981. I think conversely, you could have you could have made the argument, well, it takes place in the 30s. So that's kind of an excuse to have, you know, a docile dame and so forth. And and I love that the combination of Lucas and Spielberg don't go in that direction. I mean, Pete, could you imagine an, an Indiana Jones movie that has a female lead who just runs around screaming the entire time? It might undercut the whole thing. Or, Matt, as you alluded to earlier, was significantly younger. Yes. Um, in Lucas's original story idea, again, um, screenplay is Lawrence Kasdan, but story is uh, by George Lucas and Philip Kaufman. Lucas felt very strongly that the prior relationship had Marion and Indiana Jones together when Marion was age 11. And uh, Spielberg's quote was uh, something to the effect of that. Uh, here's the quote. She had better be older. Um, so good job, Spielberg. I mean, look, it's well, we see in the film now, you know, they, they quickly recap, you know, oh, you broke my heart. I was a child and so forth. Um, I think that in the moment you kind of go, wait, what? Oh, oh no, she means she was she means she was immature and and perhaps he was immature, too. Yeah, um, not, I was 11. And yeah, this is completely inappropriate. Um, yeah, I had never specifically heard that story. I mean, listen, there's a place for well, look at the last of us, Matt, the massive hit that that has become on TV right now and a 14 year old character and a uh, 50 some odd uh, year old character, but, you know, protective, uh, you know, surrogate father to daughter not a romantic aspect there and uh, george lucas never again did a story in which somebody has the hots for somebody else while one of them was a child the right. end <laughs> um but you know the the sequence here okay i i know where i can find the thing you want and then coming to see that she has it she's taken the money and the interlude between when Indy leaves and when uh, the Germans arrive and already the magic abilities that we see from it that it can make a candle. It's totally the the lens of the crystal making the uh, fire go down and, and not, uh, you know, an off-screen wind machine or anything like that. Um, but then the fight that takes place when obviously the Germans will not be deterred from having it sold to them and Indy coming in, uh, fighting both Nazis and hired guns and just the wonderfully blocked sequences here. You know, there's, the, the the part when you're on the bar and give me the drink so that I can hit him with the drink and get out of the fire right away. And then uh, the big guy comes in, um, the, the Napoli's hired gun, who's a stunt man and beating the crap out of Indiana Jones. And then Tote wants to have them both shot. And wait, no, we will now work together to make sure that we both die and continue to fight. It's just so watchable. It is, and it's funny, the way Tote first shows up here, I don't know if it's intentional, uh, but the way 
the scene is lit you know there's there's some fire there's some this but the amount of snow on them when they come in (laughs) (laughs) um there's just something about the look of ronald lacy the actor that he looked a little melty and i know of course i you know the iconic shot at the end i don't know if that was just luck the way he looked or if that was a trick of my own mind but it kind of was like what's up with his skin here i mean again the character is meant to be unpleasant at all times um but yeah fantastic fight scene um i think that a different movie and of course you know there's all these new hollywood uh you know writer producer directors that are making their way through here you know not through this movie but through this this period of time you know a goonies or something else would have taken the the burned imprint of the the headpiece they they would have done something with the fact that his hand is now scarred by it you know it would have mm-hmm. been from that we can get the like oh no the yes. headpiece has been ruined but we can get a copy from the we'll thing put a his... flashlight behind his hand <laughs> yeah or something like that instead it's just you know the reveal cool... later on is is just chilling on several levels um and you know to to get it burned that it's been in the fire here that he grabs it that you know oh he, he has burned himself badly and then to later learn what it looks like and how it's imprinted uh chilling um you know pun intended but uh you know from here well now we're partners indiana jones you know uh a a little hand of the writer-ish down to standing in front of your burning bar uh to have a conversation um but off to cairo we go we meet the character of sala who is back for uh dial of destiny uh which is great um until we get short round back for his own series and he takes the the franchise please 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 um you know this is all really great stuff pete could that be part of the reshoot could it be we're going to do the we're going to do the post credit scene in so i have communicated with matt off mic the lunacy of these various youtubers and you know just ne'er-do-wells thinking they have forced um a major production into changes that they have not and james mangold has also the the film's director been very very clear on twitter uh you know what they are doing um the quote unquote smoking gun, Matt, when John Williams, who has played a couple pieces from this latest film that he's scoring uh, publicly, uh, said that, oh, you know, we're we're going to do a new ending. And James Mangold explained that the venerable, um, really the uh, composer, of uh film soundtracks uh misspoke <laughs> and because sometimes people do that um yeah they are or not... indeed a new ending could have been a hey the score that you the did character as in like this is a fifth film that now gives him a different ending not oh they have decided now to change the ending no 
And with films like this, reshoots are not just a regular thing. They are a planned and prepared for and necessary thing. Yeah, and it could be as simple as John Williams composed 138 measures of stuff for the final scene. We have re-edited it to make it shorter, longer, whatever. You know, to have twice the explosion time or whatever it is. Now we need whatever. We need 20 more measures of music. That's that's a big change if you're the guy that wrote it. If you're the, the guy that wrote the music. But that's not a big change in terms of, you know, hey, we decided you know that 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 you know whatever massive change is going to be done because people on twitter you know etc etc but but pete take us to cairo john reese davies here you know the the gravitas the the good friend the digger who knows cairo and of course i know somebody who can look at that uh staff of raw headpiece crystal and you know, read it for you and, and we'll take care of all that. Uh, they have a monkey hanging around uh, his family's home. So a little bit of the exotic, Matt. And then uh, another beloved sequence here in the market. Further uh, backstory between uh, Indy and Marion all culminating in, as you mentioned before, the, the basket chase. And then, you know, if you don't know to look for it, the, the red thing that falls right out of the truck at the end before it explodes. Uh, so that you kind of get a sense in the following scene when Indiana Jones is in a cantina drinking his sorrows away because his old girlfriend has died, that uh, there's a little bit more hope than you think. Yeah, I think too, just the way that is presented, it's a little, it's a little difficult to buy her death. Like I think the audience is on the first time viewers are on the side of, boy, that was awfully quick and with no real evidence, and with a scene that was like, oh man, now there's thirty baskets and kind of, we're we're along for the ride, not you know, oh for this brief time there was the equal of this male character, but now they've now they've killed her off and that's it, the end. Um. But yeah, it's just, it's all this Cairo stuff is so wonderful. And, and Pete, it gives you a sense of the times. Apparently filming was delayed for an entire day uh, when they're at Sala's, um, so the, the, the rooftop area uh, of Sala's home. Uh, it might be a couple scenes from now, but, but we'll talk about it now. Um, they had to delay filming for a day to get all homes within the shot needed to have their TV antennas taken down. So it was 300 TV antennas that need to be taken down <laughs> versus like nowadays they'd be like, just shoot the thing. Yeah. Uh, and then we're just going to use the computer to get rid of it. Or uh, I don't know, let's take some 3d scans and we're going to blue screen this, or we're going to, we're going to volume it and we'll just, whatever. Right. We'll just build Cairo in the computer, man. Like no, no, no problem. Why actually go there and be like today it was too windy today. It was too this, whatever, man, just build a fake Cairo. Right. Like, you know, You've seen the trailer for Dial of Destiny and a ticker tape parade in 1960s New York without paparazzi photos of that existing because obviously the digital trickery that they've been able to since incorporate into this franchise. But, uh, you know, the, the great 
iconic sequence where the, you know, the swordsman comes out and does the big thing. And Harrison Ford, much like with I love you, I know. All right. I'm not really going to deal with this guy and just pulling the gun and shooting him once dead. Apparently, everyone on the crew had dysentery except for Steven Spielberg, who brought his own food and water from England. So that was a factor, too, that, like, not only are they all tired and maybe, again, at risk of falling behind on the schedule, and Spielberg is seeing a real real possible scenario where, if, you know, if this movie, as this movie is being made, if he loses control of this movie, maybe that's kaput for, you know, the Jaws Wunderkind. Um, but everybody's sick. Harrison Ford has a fever and so forth, and it's like, yes, this poor stunt guy has spent weeks rehearsing, what if we just shot it with like three or four from three or four angles, you know, and then we're done move on. And with that, Pete, the schedule stays intact. And to think that if people had brought their own food, we would not have this scene. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's, it's crazy. But that following scene where Indy believes that Marion's dead and uh, Belloc comes in there both to kind of, you know, service the the mirror, you know, the the foil again, and then to kind of gloat, and then to even kind of uh, prompt him to get back on his horse, and then ultimately the children, solace children, running in to save him. I I can't help but see a little influence, perhaps, of like. Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird, you know, the the children saving the day of the hero. It's a, it's a great scene with a good trapdoor to rescue Indiana Jones. Um, and here we are, roughly the midpoint, and now it's the second time that he has been bested by Belloc. And um, if I may fast forward for a moment, when he's bested, when Indiana Jones is bested by Belloc again, uh, coming out of the um, the 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 Well of Souls and all that, that watching it this time, I was like, "Oh my goodness!" Like he just keeps losing. Like, yes, mm-hmm. he's our hero and so on and so forth, but they're doing a really good job of not kind of supermaning uh, Indiana Jones because we're having all this fun and we're seeing successes to a certain degree, but he keeps losing at these major points, which I think keeps us keeps us invested, keeps us with kind of the, you know, the Luke Skywalker farm boy, I can relate to my main character aspect, despite the fact that we've seen him do all these great things in the intro. Um, It's just a really great sense of balance to make sure that, you know, that we're not looking up at this amazing guy. We we are his almost equal. Well, one loss he does not suffer, uh, despite... Marion moving out of the story at this point, the monkey remaining and the monkey being the one that eats the bad dates. Uh, Yes, indeed. Um, The iconic bad dates there. Um, That then of course gives more screen time here uh, for Indy and Sala together as they, uh, as they head to the, this massive dig site, which again, I'm watching it going. Um, Spielberg had to settle for 600 es- uh, extras. He wanted 2000. <laughs> and I'm just looking at it going, Oh my goodness. Like, even if you're going to sit and go, 
we're going to do a proper old-fashioned production. We're going to go to the desert with sets and all of that. That's all well and good. You would not go to the trouble to get 600 extras. You'd get 30 extras, and then did you double all the rest, or you'd spend a day with second unit where you take all your extras, and they go stand on a big blue mat, and you have them walk this way, that way, the other, so now you can go copy-paste, 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 and that that's how you get 4,000, not cut it down to a modest 600 and be like, guy over there, pretend to dig, action. Um, this is not a movie that shows its age in particular, but, it's, you know, kind of the behind-the-scenes stuff, you go, oh, my goodness, that's how they used to do it. To think that they would do that, this map room sequence, the first, uh, you know, unfurling of that theme by John Williams, this really magical uh, sequence of using the crystal and the staff, the proper height that they know now to be able to shine the sun onto this, uh, you know, scale map of the city of Tannis to find the well of souls. And for me, you know, another part of the hype train to this film, you know, the release of it. And then after it, ironically came a lot of the hype, uh, the, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, uh, Atari video game and the way in which you went about the, the adventures there. And then even I remember getting our hands on the videotape for the first time. And there was an announcement on the Raiders VHS tape about them filming uh, the next Indiana Jones adventure. They had not released the title at this point, And they did the, you know, the globe trotting and filming here in Sri Lanka on location and this and that summer of 1984. We were like, oh, you know, we're going to we're going to get another one of these adventures. And, you know, when we weren't running around the woods behind my house, we had this really super expansive, uh, you know, place to play with, you know, brooks and trees and you know every uh home under construction in my neighborhood became an archaeological site that we could check out and all these things we were, we were constantly playing uh you know indiana jones uh at this point the proper archaeological site uh, having been sited with the map here uh indy and sala and their small group of people that are that are conveniently and i think realistically unnoticed they go under cover of darkness start to dig find the find the the cap of it and so forth um leading to the really fun well of souls portion of the story you know why is the why is the floor moving the reveal of all the snakes mm -hmm. um which, which again you know very the, the whole threat of snakes personally to the character but de facto to to we the audience who again are relating to him because of his uh on-screen charisma and also I, I would argue some of his uh his mistakes along the way um but we've had the whole snake thing prepped um and that's just i don't know pete i don't know why spiders are the problem and for me snakes on screen are not um but it's just it's just such great fun um it, it, it's just it, you know it's great stuff with with the snakes getting closer and then the burning of them um i will mention pete spielberg wanted more snakes so it was like <laughs> all of europe all all 
all snake handlers in Europe had a couple of days to get more snakes than they had more snakes. But then they didn't have enough anti-venom to do it safely. And there was all these, which again, these are all things that nowadays you'd be like, hey, single snake handler, let's get 30 snakes and uh, have the computer guys build all the rest and, uh, you know, make sure it's all like garden snakes or whatever. The digital model of the snake. (laughs) Exactly, you know. Um, Yeah, I I am personally terrified of, uh, you know, snakes, not on a screen. Um, And the decision to give this, uh, you know, character the kryptonite if you will of snakes and how it plays out in the series and the the in joke that it's become for the audience and being able to use it in each of the films um you know just a a great choice and to constantly return to it and you know in and around this we see that arnold tote has shown up in Cairo here that he's shown his hand in the way that they greet one another and we see the burned in um you know uh face the uh, think it's obviously an illusion the eagle on there uh what with the Nazi emblems and then um to have the reveal for the audience that Marion is alive, that she is in Belloc's tent. And then, you know, the gambit that she tries to run. All right. We know she can drink somebody over under the table. She's going to try to do that with this, you know, evil reflection of Indiana Jones, who's kind of creeping on Karen Allen as she's changing into a dress through the mirror. Again, very simple but effective symbolism. And to have Tote show up in the tent there and the menace of what is actually a coat hanger. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a fun, it's, yeah, scene after scene here is so much fun. That one in particular, uh, because I did not remember the movie beat by beat, like, oh man, what is going to happen? Is this the thing I fast forwarded through as a kid, but now I've forgotten or whatever it might be instead, as you say, uh, as you say, the coat hanger, um, you know, and, and from the story construction perspective, Belloc is a bad guy based on who he's working with. I don't know that like, I don't know that all of the Rene Belloc papers written for Archaeological Monthly, uh, I don't know that they're all evil and all the ones written by, you know, uh, Professor Jones are all are all the good articles. You know, which is to say, I think Belloc, Belloc is, anti, is an anti-hero in many ways versus a full-on villain. And you combine Belloc and Tote and there's kind of your villainous force um which is which completely works i'm not trying to sound that it does not it's just kind of unique to sit and go these two guys are bad guys but one of them you know they're not both darth vaders they're they're not both clearly evil uh it's just an interesting way to to put it together well i mean the nazis as a concept 
are the big bad in this film are the antagonist tote is your you know vader or your you know uh grand moff tarkin and you know that belloc is french that this is the collaborator this is the vichy french if you will uh going along with uh, the Nazis not doing enough to to stop or actively collaborating with, um, and again, it's it's all there in history. So you just build the identity of the characters from that. Um, but with their discovery here, then Indiana Jones, what what are these guys doing digging overnight while everyone else is asleep? Oh, hey, wake your men. <laughs> Um, and then to encircle them and Indy is the last one in there. Uh, and then to throw Marion that obviously Belloc, uh, has some attraction towards and would like to keep above ground in there with the snakes, having taken the arc from them, uh, Indiana Jones, adieu. Um, yeah, and then we get more, you know, the, the fires are going out action and so forth. Um, again, it's a big fun set piece. We've kind of, we've had the giant statue already previewed for us in that when they pull the, the lid off initially, it's up there and it gives us a good R2D2 and C3PO and hieroglyphics. Um, absolutely. Um, so anyhow, just, just the whole construction of the, the tension of it and the snakes are getting closer and, and, um, I even buy kind of the weight of like when the statue goes over and knocks the blocks out, I was all set to be like, look, I see the styrofoam. I see the styrofoam. And it, it, it worked. I mean, maybe one of the blocks. Plywood, Matt. It's, it, those are real thousands of year old blocks. <laughs> um, similarly, when it's, you know, they discover there's the slightest little nook and it's easy enough to push out the giant, the conveniently placed giant block to for them to get out on the side and so forth. It all just works. I don't know that, you know, if you sat and stopped and said, so wait, there's always been this block stick. Like if you kind of dig too deep, then it starts to fall apart. But that's true. Of... And a snake waterfall has always existed there underground in this environment. <laughs> yeah. Like, like again, if, if you, if you squint, it all works and and none of this is being asked for you know th this is the ultimate you know 20 million dollar b movie right i mean that's how it was conceived um that's how it was budgeted i would even argue pete for all of the you know lucas suddenly discovered after really really totally thinking up most of star wars he then discovered uh you know all the joseph campbell stuff and all the layers of myth and so forth of course there's mythic aspects to Raiders of the Lost Ark but I think I would argue that they are consciously moving in a different direction from you know the guy you know the the protagonist the youth who must become a man the guide the magical friend the like they're they, they don't want this movie to get the scrutiny of you know Joseph Campbell is going to sit one day with Bill Moyers and discuss you know ancient tales from Mesopotamia the growth of Christianity and star Wars all in a PBS sit down. Like that's not what this movie is meant to be. So, okay. There's a little hole in the side that when Indy pushes a heavy block, it's now person size and they can get out. That's fine. Let's move on. 
And as we head into this kind of three-headed climax of the film, you know, first this iconic plane fight with the stuntman and the tension and all of that, that they're going to take the the arc out on this uh, German plane, which then morphs into, ah, well, now we're going to get it out on a truck and... Indiana Jones is going to run it down on a horse. And now he's got control of the truck. Oh, no, wait, he doesn't. He's been sent under the truck and, uh, you know, all practically done, uh, you know, to to come back around and retake that truck after, you know, whipping his way underneath. Uh, just a fantastic, fantastic crowd-pleasing sequence there and, and the music playing them through um to ultimately recapture the arc and now be headed on their way uh on a on a pirate ship famously the last shot of the movie is an homage to citizen kane uh less discussed um but jumping out to me was with the with the when he's underneath the truck I mean, that's right out of a very similar scene in Stagecoach where there's somebody underneath the stagecoach and going along the axis of it and so forth. So I see you, Steven Spielberg, knowing your film history and so forth. Um, but as you say, Pete, here they are on this tramp steamer. I had 1,000% completely forgotten this scene entirely. Uh, so it, I was definitely watching it with new eyes. Like, I'm not saying that there's some sort of home video cut or we recorded it from tv and tv cut it out or i'm not saying that something like that existed also like wikipedia doesn't reference that existing either but if somebody was like oh look no it earned on abc in 1987 and that excluded this scene like i would believe that that was the version that i saw or, or something like that because this whole thing i'm like who's this really cool captain guy what's going on and this is great and the whole bit with the mirror and hitting him and then you know, leading to the smooch and he falls like the whole, the whole portion of it. It's visually interesting. We have brand new cast of characters. Uh, there, there's romance. There's not too much of it and so forth. It's just, it's just great. That Sala tells uh, Mr. Katanga here, the, the captain to take care of them. And then Marion kissing uh, Sala, you know, one for your family, one for your wife, one for you, just, you know, the, the, the gratitude of getting them through these horrible experiences, um, you know, unscathed and, you know, uh, John Reese Davies, of course, singing his way, uh, stage left. Um, but then to have the sequence, the, the weariness in the cabin there, you know, perhaps the most intimate scene in the film, uh, you know, in the great line there that it's not the years, it's the mileage that he's so beat up. And Harrison Ford is about 36 years old at this point, um, you know, just broken. And then, you know, all right, where where doesn't it hurt? That's where I'll kiss. And to have him fall asleep, you know, it it's simply and eloquently done uh similarly talking about things that would not have been filmed practically nowadays um 
when the u-boat shows up and it's like wait there's something out there and you kind of have this great shot from the real ship to the real the real submarine out there that's a submarine borrowed from uh the film das boot the you know landmark uh german language submarine movie so like again you're on a real boat there's a real uh submarine and so forth you wouldn't put hollywood legend harrison ford on the side of a uh german u-boat to then climb atop it with the other ship in the background uh shooting from a third boat just (laughs) to get this shot matt um personally no but it's just um i don't know it's just a great uh, again i'm watching this saying this is like you know this is fairly no uh, new to me um i know that i'm trying to find it now i know there's some um continuity error supposedly where like well how could he hang on to the u-boat the entire time i'm trying to find the exact wording of so it, it but y- yeah like U-boats wouldn't norm back then. They wouldn't normally be underwater the yeah. whole time. They they look up the periscope. Uh, they they make some of the gauges go, but it's never explicit that they go back beneath the the water. So they 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 just move there, and he's hanging out the whole time and just dodges the the periscope. Um, you know, pulling into this secret island we never know exactly where it is um donning the uh the the nazi uniform um and uh being able to grab a hold of a rocket launcher here uh to ultimately confront uh the nazis we're gonna blow up the ark in a scene in which uh belloc has a fly crawl completely over his lips and doesn't break character he claims it flew away i was actually watching for it and it it, it looks like it looks like he eats it i do not know how it's like is this digitally placed there right (laughs) he he does not uh flinch uh just maybe the most impressive thing of the film (laughs) um I like too how Belloc, you know, Belloc calls away the Nazis. Ha, indeed, has them at gunpoint and essentially says, "You want to blow this up, blow it up." Like archaeologist to archaeologist, we know that that's not going to happen because this is a precious artifact. Um, indeed, I, I, I think one could argue that if you're watching this for the first time, you have a strong feeling it's the Ark of the Covenant, but it's not. You know, uh, by the end of the film, I think it's you know you're, you're meant to see it as 100, percent but but just kind of the the ac- the two academics, it's like I don't buy your threat, so it's actually not a threat, um, which does lead Pete. Here was the choice that obviously was made here. I just want to highlight the choice. So you know, uh, Indiana Jones says, "Fine, I won't blow it up." He and Marion, uh, he and Marion are. Uh, obviously you know uh tied up and put on the the stick and so forth as the plot that we're about to discuss unfolds i just want to say interesting choice there because essentially you're gonna have the climax of the movie in which your hero your hero doesn't really have a role in the climax Mm -hmm. other than having i guess if you want to say the knowledge of 
don't look at all that's going to be in there, uh, which which is definitely a good note in that the two of them survive. Our two heroes survive and all the baddies don't. Um, but again, it's just, I f- I've always found it kind of a slightly weird thing that, you know, he doesn't push the button or do the this or do the that or, or not even say, Belloc, don't do it. Archaeologist to archaeologist, the way you saved me before with the rocket launcher, let me save you. Instead, it's just, there they are kind of at the rear of the scene. Um, maybe because Lucas and Spielberg wanted this big, you know, wonderful, scary, delightful, revenge-filled scene here. And maybe that that trumped the kind of, the Lawrence Kasdan desire for like, but the hero must slay the dragon. I, I don't know, but but Pete, take us through Belloc saying those words and so forth. It would be overwritten today, exactly as you're saying. They they would then reverse it. You saved me. I will now at least attempt to save you. And it's like, nope, this dude's a collaborator. And we've already had the subtext of the Nazi officer being uncomfortable with this Jewish ritual, this Hebrew ritual to open and to make sure the thing is inside the thing before they bring it to Hitler, you know, you don't want to tick them off and not have the thing you wanted. You got to make sure it's in there. Um, so opening it up and, you know, the, the poltergeist uh, of it, you know, the, the spirits, the ghosts, the power of God, it's always kind of nebulous. And I think it's best left as such, but you know, Oh, from it's, it's beautiful to, Oh my God. <laughs> The, the the changing of the the spirit to something you know far more sinister um and obviously the climax is what happens to the three men over the arc you know kind of the three blind mice if you will uh but you know the greatest effect of course reserved for the one we identify as the most evil that arnold tote uh liquefies that his face completely melts that that another is consumed in fire that that another one explodes um you know when you think of the technology of the time the practicality uh and and then the special effects that they layer onto it and it listen you you you're fully aware that you're watching a movie when you watch it it's it's not photorealistic um but as film effects they continue to hold up and and to be eminently watchable i mean who has not seen and i reach for this gif of tote melting all the time uh the exploding head by the way got the film an r so they put a fire effect over it so it was a little like the explosion is there yeah. um but you could see the fire obscuring it and so forth again if only there was something between pg and r then maybe it maybe it would have yeah, been oh, next movie will rip a heart out of somebody's chest <laughs> um but i mean it's certainly an action-packed conclusion there uh and one that um the subtext is not far from the surface that these jewish traditions uh again pete nebulous best best as nebulous in the film but these these jewish traditions uh overcoming the nazi spirit and so forth um as as timely as ever certainly uh overcoming nazis and all of that 
Um, perhaps also, too, in the spirit of Indiana Jones is not completely in charge of the story at the end of the story here. It's it's a delicious ending in terms of, you know, our top men are on it. I'd like more than that. You're not going to get more than that. We're going to give the audience a little bit more, but you're not getting more. Um, Maybe one day in that movie that Matt doesn't recognize, we'll we'll see the MacGuffin again. I guess. Um, but and you're the same, you know, musical cues. <laughs> but yeah, the reiteration of, well, who's on it? Top men are on it. And to have it be in this warehouse and a custodian wheeling it back as we said before in an homage um you know really effective hollywood but at the same time you know not overwhelming not writerly in the narrative as you said you know indy is largely a passive character uh from the moment he grabs a rocket launcher and decides, oh, I'm still an archaeologist. I'm not going to blow up a, a piece of history. I think as well, this ending in the context of what Lucasfilm is going through in terms of its production. Um, and I know over on our Patreon, we've had discussions for the Star Wars films about, you know, if they were made today and, and different different thoughts, including like, let's make sure that we can franchise this as much as possible and where's our disney plus spinoff and where's our novelization character and where's our comics and all that um with less of that on their mind in 1979 1980 as this movie is coming together for a 1981 release um i think that they know hey if you have a good first one that maybe just leaves the door open to stuff but not necessarily sets up part two if you have a good first one you can do more of them I think, too, I can only imagine as this movie is coming out, they are aware that they are two-thirds of the way through Star Wars. Hey, if this Indiana Jones is a good one, maybe you do two more. Maybe that takes you past the Star Wars times and into maybe even towards the end of the 80s. Um, so I think that the way it ends in terms of this isn't the only mystery that's out there, w whether it's setting up a possibility at some point, obviously done with the fourth one, whether it's setting up the possibility of we're going to go to that warehouse and we're going to pull another another toy out of a box, or just, again, this notion of the larger Indiana Jones universe where there are other things out there like this. Um, I think it's very Star Wars A New Hope in its ending in terms of saying the story is over, but the story continues. Yes, and uh, looking forward to continuing this conversation next week matt with indiana jones and the temple of new the prequel george's first prequel <laughs> um but pete certainly this conversation made possible by those who support us on patreon.com slash fantastic geek and uh, our thanks for uh them being our own well of souls everybody who contributes gets access to exclusive podcast content it takes just a dollar to get you behind that door but you determine the price you put on the product here uh can't contribute right now get yourself over to apple podcasts leave us a rating uh or a review in uh seconds here uh to any of our 33 podcast feeds Pete, let's keep the conversation going. How can people be in touch with you on a, an existing social media network? 
not quite a uh, radio for speaking to God, but a radio for speaking to people. Uh, on Twitter, you can find me at Peter, P-I-E-T-E-R-J-K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R, 12,721 followers. Can't be wrong. And while I'm personally on Twitter as Looking Back Lost, do be touch the podcast, comment on fantasticgeek.com. Check us out on Twitter, Instagram, and Gmail, where we are Fantastic Geek as well. But wait, Pete, there's more. Facebook.com slash Fantastic Geek. All one word with the P and the H. Like it today. On the Pop Culture Podcast feed, I'm sure Pete, in the next couple days, we'll be talking the Picard final season, final trailer, uh, and it appearing during a foot is ball. Um, certainly this time next week, we'll be talking uh, Temple of Doom. Looking forward to that as well, because it's probably been a while since I've seen portions of it. Uh, for now, though, Pete, I will say adios to all our listeners and give you the final word. I am already missing you. 